Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of restaurantowner.com. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. And welcome to another Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, hospitality industry writer and business school professor at North Carolina Central University. And today we're going to have a really interesting conversation with a couple of very, very hot rising stars in the business. We've got a couple of concepts, Saigon Hustle. We've got Sunday Press. We've got other stuff to talk about. So I'd like to present Sandy Wynn and Cassie Kafar. Ladies, welcome to Corner Booth. Thank you. We're super excited to be here. Thanks for having us on. Oh, thank you. So you have two concepts. So let's start with Saigon Hustle. I love the name. Tell us about that concept and the menu, the the vibe, everything. Well, Saigon Hustle is as authentic a Vietnamese food as we could make it. We definitely did not want to compromise flavor profiles herbs, um, ingredients, you know, the lemongrass, the the more expensive fish sauce, things like that. But basically, we knew that we wanted to come up with a concept that was also easily accessible, or that would infiltrate the mainstream a little bit, you know, easier than you know, the Chinatown Asian restaurants where a lot of people can't read the menu, or, you know, it's a little bit intimidating to the mainstream. And so, you know, we also have seven boys. I have four and Sandy has three. And we find ourselves not being able to find a lot of variety in fast casual food that's not just fast food. And so, you know, Sandy and I have had, we've been best friends since college, have worked together in the college days in the nightlife bar industry, went our separate ways career-wise, but stayed best friends all along, had our kids. And about a few years ago, right before COVID, Sandy was like, hey, let's do something together. And I was like, really? You want to go into restaurant again? You know? And, and she was like, yes, yes. I think that like with your knowledge and franchising and wealth management and my knowledge in operating food and beverage that we can come up with something that's going to be really cool. And so I was like, well, look, Sandy, if we do something, it better be big. I'm not here trying to do a mom and pop that we're just trying to operate seven days a week for another 20 years, you know? So we said, let's make a concept that is scalable, that we can multiply, but that has great, amazing food. And so Saigon Hustle was kind of Sandy's dream. She's like, I really want Vietnamese food. And how can we make it fast and good? And I was like, okay, so I'm the chef. And I was like, let's see what we can do. So we came up with the concept before and a solid operational plan, to be very honest. But we knew it, we wanted drive through. And so we signed Saigon Hustle's lease right before COVID hit, January 2020. COVID hit March 2020 and kind of just delayed the process. And so we had an opportunity during COVID to bring Saigon Hustle to a cloud kitchen. And we, as a test, so we wanted to test our recipes, how fast we could move, um, while not wasting money, we were able to push it through DoorDash and Uber Eats. And so we made, you know, money along the way while we were testing the kitchen. And that's where we really, for about nine months during COVID, were able to 
really get food out fast, time it through the cloud kitchen, get live orders in. And then a brick and mortar came and we just got even better at it and even faster at it. And our volume quadrupled and, it, you know, in size and um, every day we work at it. But I think the best way to explain Saigon Hustle would be we are like the Chipotle of Vietnamese food. <laughs> where you have okay, okay. Mm-hmm, you have your base right so Chipotle, you have your rice bowl salad bowl burrito quesadillas we have our rice bowl our vermicelli bowl um, which is the rice noodle we have our bun mi which is our vietnamese sandwich we have salad and we also roll all the proteins in spring rolls so then you pick your protein we've got pork chicken beef salmon and tofu and so that's kind of how we kind of come up with this Chipotle model is you pick your protein, pick your base, and we'll put it all together. But the food is fresh. The produce is fresh. We bring it in every day, cut it every day. It's healthy. You know, you're talking grilled meats over rice, over salad, over noodles, uh, the pickled carrots and daikon add a great flavor profile to the salty, slightly sweet meats. And so at the end of the day, you know, we... We hustled through, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> and we've had a great coming on two years now for Saigon Hustle. You know, I, I loved hearing the story because I'm sitting here listening as a user, you know, and you're describing what your intention was and how you came about and and that whole comparison to wanting to know that you're doing something from the start that is automatically scalable, the comparison to the Chipotle, because see, as a user, um, that's what I see. You know, when when I'm there there's and there's a line at the walk-up window, it's quick. Um, and people are going, bowl, protein, bing, bing, boom. A good portion, um, fast, reasonably priced. So it is accessible. So, yeah, it's, it's nice to know that what was in your mind is obviously the way it's easily perceived. And what's great about our menu is that we've notated it to where, you know, we we think about everyone who has dietary restrictions. So like gluten free, vegan, vegetarian. And so we can make those modifications to really tailor to the masses um, in the sense that, you know, the mom and pops on Chinatown aren't really aware of those types of movement of food or, or to notate the menu as such. Um, so we make it extremely approachable for everyone. Is it all fast casual? I mean, is it any dine-in in terms of the style of service? Currently, right now, we just have outdoor seating, but our next one is going to have indoor seating. Mm-hmm. So that's be our ideal prototype will be indoor and outdoor. Is most of your business takeaway or do people come in and sit down and enjoy the food on premises? So 70% of our food is to go online. Okay. Yep, uh-huh. very, very heavily to go. And I imagine that what you're making travels pretty well. Um, just guessing. Um, bon me, spring rolls, um, they seem like things that um, I could pick up and take back to my house. And 20 minutes later, it's all going to look really good still. Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. You know what, Cassie, does the 70% include the drive through when you're saying um, to go, or uh, is it 70% just? The actual phone in, uh, third party. Just, just third party and online is 70%. We're not talking about the drive-thru part. But I mean, right now, obviously, we don't have dine-in. So those right. numbers are pro- probably a little bit skewed. So we'll definitely find out on our next location what that would look like. Um, but that's a huge chunk. I mean, I myself 
Uber Eats all the time. I know Cassie Uber Eats all the time. I, I DoorDash, okay? Okay, DoorDash. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't Uber Eats. She DoorDashes. Okay, all right. Well. Um, and well, so it's a good plug for both of them. Right? <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. And so for us, the digital presence is really, really important just because that's the way things are going. I mean, we're always on the go and, um, you know, I'm on the way home and I'll, I'll door dash something or Uber eat something just because I know it'll get there in time by the time I get home. Um, that's just kind of where, where we're at in society these days. Well, second yeah. hustle one is, um, sorry, is, is a hard corner, 40,000 cars pass a day. We knew that it would be a really hot location. So we had no choice. We, not that we didn't have a choice, but we knew we, we, what we were getting into with not having dine in. And I think that's what shocks us the most with this business model is the fact that we don't have it. And you're talking 70% is through Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub, maybe another 15 to 20 through the drive-thru, which has increased quite a bit <clears throat> now that people know that it's a, it's a drive-thru. And then... um the rest is customer interface. And so with that, it makes our labor model really nice because you're front of house. We sit on two in the morning and two at night and we're, we're pushing out some pretty hard numbers, you know? And so we were able to bring down, uh, not only just make the menu amazing, but built this scalable model of labor too. Mm-hmm. And yeah. You know, you're not the first young operative we talked to who went into this saying, hey, you know, I'm not just in this to create a job for myself. I'm in it to create a, an enterprise. Um, but it's always interesting to me the uh, philosophy going into what it means to create a multi-unit enterprise. Um, what does it mean to you in terms of your growth strategy? Is it organic? Hey, listen, we're just going to make this work. And then when we see the next opportunity and it's right, we'll make this work. Or do you basically have, I say, have the Garden of Eden all mapped out on graph paper and, and you know, 15 units by 2025 or we're, we, we didn't yeah. hit our mark? I It's it's really funny because when we first started this, it was like this vision to go nationwide, right? Mm-hmm. And we really, there wasn't a number. All I could think in my head really was maybe 50. Well, we didn't even know how we were going to do we, this yeah, ourselves. No idea. Seven and- kids. But great concept came into play and we knew we wanted to scale. Actually, I think ideally we wanted a national brand. We knew we could probably only build the first five to six or seven. Um, And our goal was to always find um, an equity partner that had the expertise to take it further. Right. And because we know what we're capable of and our bandwidth and, you know, our, work-life balance of what we want to. I mean, we work really hard, but there's no way Sandy and I could single-handedly build out 40, 50 units with our two bare hands. Um, Over the course of our lifetime. Capital to do so and different things like that. And so um, the vision was to get there. How we got there, we were going to figure out along the way. So how did that happen? Who met who? Uh, How did that happen with the the partnering of you and Savory and then the planning of your expansion model? Well, I think when we initially got together, um, Cassie and I actually had started talking to a lot of private equity companies from the start just to understand what that might look like because we wanted to kind of do our research and say, okay, if we're going to single-handedly grow maybe to five units, just Cassie and I, um, how do we get there? What does that look like? What are they looking for? Um, so really just kind of figuring out that roadmap. And so 
um, Savory was introduced to us by a really good friend of ours in the restaurant industry. And he's just like, you know, these are really good guys. You should just meet them. I don't know what's going to come of it, but definitely go and see them. And it so happened to be that week we were going up to Salt Lake and that's where they're from. Um, Savory's from Salt Lake. And so uh, we were like, hey, we're going to drop by your office. We're we're about to open Saigon Hustle. So Saigon Hustle wasn't even open then. Um, I think it was like six or eight months prior to going and um, just had a conversation. Just said, hey, this is what we're doing. And they're like, cool. Nice to meet you. Keep us in the loop. Literally, that was it. Didn't think anything of it at all. Then we opened up um, Saigon in February of 21, 2021, um, working through our kinks, trying to figure out how to like get all of it to work um, in the trenches of things as any new restaurant goes through. And uh, Savory reached out about a few months into our opening was like, you guys really need to join this uh enter this um, restaurant launch, million dollar restaurant launch that we're doing. And we're like, okay. And I literally thought we were going to be in a food competition. Like I was going to be making food at like, you know, top chef style. Yeah, so I told her, I was like, don't worry. I'll be in the background, just, you know, chopping anything that you need. I'll be your super chef. You just tell me what to do and we'll win this competition. Not um, quite it, huh? No, no. I thought we were going to be like on this show with like several episodes and like do this really, really complex competition. Um, but it, it turned out, you know, it was it was a vigorous um, interview process. Um, and I think once we applied, we they re- say we reached out to us and said, I think it was like two months later. Um, They're like, hey, uh, we've selected our semifinalist and you're one of the four. And um, I was like, wow, okay, we're one of the four that that was that was quick. And um, so they actually flew the whole team down um, to meet us in person. And I think once we met them, it was just such a natural relationship. Um, We've met a lot of people and there's something about it when you when you feel like it's a good fit, you can feel the partnership working. And um, so we got to spend all day with Savory and toured them around our, around Houston to Saigon and and showed them the site and things like that. And uh, and then afterwards, they uh... there was good synergy yeah. um, for us. We've talked to a lot of equity companies who really just want to back you with money, and you know, but to get to fifty again, we only have two two hands, two feet times the two of us, you know, mm-hmm. and Savory came with an operational partnership where they were going to help us get there, not just with money, but with operations from front end to back end to HR, to financials, to accounting, different things like that. And I was like, great, you know, let us focus on, you know, driving a business to what we do best because we don't know everything. And they apply themselves into where we need the help in. And so, um, that partnership is what really sold us with Savory and, you know, why today we're still very blessed and very happy to be with them. Yeah, they're just not like money guys saying, I give you money and what's our return and our, our investors going to want this and that. They're like, we're going to, we have a fiduciary right to our investors. We're going to make this work together. What's great That's- about Savory is that they're the, I feel like the probably one of the only equity companies that actually come from the food and beverage as operators. So everyone there has operated a hundred plus locations and um, there's so much value in that. It's amazing the expertise that they come with. You're not the first um, 
operators we've talked to who spoke highly of savory. And the thing that sticks in my mind, right? I mean, I want to talk to business people who are looking at private equity and looking at partnerships. You know, the first question I have in my mind is how much control are you giving up? And I'm getting a sense from them that you still are in, you still are in the driver's seat. Am I getting it? Yes, 100%. They know, they, they express very candidly that the brand does not exist without us. And that's huge for us, right? Like we cannot do this without you guys and, and, um, and you can do this without us, you know? And so they do understand that. And they, they have a, a really nice and cordial way to navigate through things, um, to keep us in line without making it feel like they're taking control. It is the things that we need to do, the things that we should be doing in order to scale. So where is the next location? Uh, you mentioned site number two already. The first site, you know, I know well, is a yeah, very well-established business and neighborhood, pretty well-balanced part of Houston, Texas. Where's the second one going to be? Well, we just signed on Tuesday, location two, which is our first official Savory Saigon Hustle partnership. Um, this is where that million dollars goes into. It was seed money to go into location two. It took us over a year to find it because we were looking for the perfect location um, with the drive-through. You know, Houston is very competitive, um, but we're going to Spring Branch up near Memorial. So it is in our neighborhood. Uh, it's where Sandy and I live, which is makes it even more exciting because I think um, our our neighborhood, our schools here know Saigon Hustle very well. It's just a little far from them. So I think yeah. the high and the community is really going to back up Saigon Hustle into Spring Branch. Um, we're moving very fast with Savory's help, construction team with us every day, you know, saying a lot, a lot of it right now is this is your budget and this is where you need a cash on cash return. And this is where we need to stay. And so we're going to do everything that we can to make this happen. And, um, and so we work um, very consciously to keep within that budget as we go through every step of the way for the first time with Savory. Um, I will say a lot of times Sandy and I probably would have buckled in the past and said, but we really like this and we'll, we'll compromise for this, you know, and that's just not going to get us to where our future is heading towards. I think that's the most exciting part because, um, you know, we make all these decisions because we're just like, we really love it or we really want it. But now that we have Savory as a partner, it's kind of like they they set the guidelines and the boundaries of where we can go and where we can live in terms of like this. It needs to be this so that we can grow. And um, that gives us goals, right? Because whereas before there wasn't really a playbook for us, it's just like, maybe this is the budget. Maybe we can go over. It's fine. We'll spend X amount over and we'll just, like she said, buckle. Um, so that's to me is just it's been an amazing process and we love it. We absolutely love it. You know, Chris, uh, um, one of the things really catching my attention is, um, and, and obviously you ladies are, are are smart and savvy, but the real estate and location selection part of it, to me, that's just super complex. You've been dealing with it for years. Um, to me, it sounds like that is really where they bring a lot of um, a lot of positive consulting. Um, you know, finding the place and then the rent factor and the and the traffic studies and the demographics of the space. I mean, that's, to me anyway, that's not lightweight stuff. Well, and it's gotten a little tougher. Sandy, you guys are starting out in a period of time now with this post-COVID uh, 
I don't know, expansion rush where good sites are, you know, harder to find and it's competitive and it's driving uh, costs up and and the supplies vary uh, that that everyone needs just for the basic restaurants. Construction costs can be as high as 40 or 50 percent more than they were just two years ago. So I think what you're saying is really, really important. If you've got a small group of professionals saying now they do that really understand real estate, construction, cost, management of timeline, um, then that's really important now because there's just so little room for error right now in today's cost structure and competitive environment. Was that a big deal for you ladies in turn was that a huge part of uh what they brought to the table in terms of finding the real estate and 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 all that part of it or did you kind of already have a handle on that? Well, I will say that we live in Houston, so we really knew where we wanted to go. Um mm-hmm. we had several brokers looking. It, it it was just not easy to find the the perfect location for us being drive-through, being your you're within an economic, you know, boundary. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but when we found it, we, you know, Sandy and I are typically in the trenches negotiating leases, you know, being bad cop, good cop. I mean, they found it. We watched the whole negotiation and transaction happen back and forth on email. Didn't say a word, didn't do anything, <laughs> just watched it. And we watched them stand firm. And I think a lot more firm than we would have done, um, even to the last two days before signing. And it was like, these terms don't work like this. And that's it for us, you know, and really had the, um, the I guess, the power, right, um, to say, you know, if this doesn't work, then it doesn't work. But then it worked out in the end. But we would have, again, conceded um, during the lease negotiation side. Um, at some capacity, probably not realizing the effects or consequences till later, but they they did. And we we made a joke. I texted um, the guy on the back end, Brad, and I was like, wow, way to not man down, way to not lay off of that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we just showed up with something, you know? And so that was, we kept laughing about it. Like we didn't do anything for this location, except knowing that this is where we wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. So describe a little bit uh, of, what you are going to anticipate to see there. Cause you already mentioned that this is more of the prototype for expansion and it has inside seating. So uh, what will the square footage be and what other pieces maybe have changed from some Saigon hustle one? Um, we are going from 850 square feet, feet of kitchen and a little counter space and some outdoor patio, which not a lot of people sit at cause it's hot in Houston or it's windy or it's rainy, just not, you know, weather conducive all the time. Um, but we are going into about 2000 square feet okay. uh, and kind of like, it's like an old gas station again, but it's more square footage, very retro. Um, and we're having the dine inside. And so, you yeah. know, there are times where we look at this model, it's like, will we do well here? Will we do well here? And I'm like, yeah, because we're already doing well without dine-in, right? Imagine adding a dine-in component. That's huge, you know? And so just imagine that the potential, we, we think we're doing great now. We have a, a lot of potential with this dine-in side of things. Um, we intend to add pho to this location. Um, okay. through. So that's another, you know, change in dynamics that I think is going to really pump in more revenue that we're we're setting ourselves up for doing file on the go um, added to the menu. Um, and so 
that I think that's game changer for us as well. So a little venue expansion and seating. Good for you. Okay. But it'll still be quick. It'll still be counter service. Drive through. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The concept doesn't change except that we've added dining. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Far to go. I mean, everybody who I know, I have some friends who are Vietnamese operators and that's, that's not an easy dish to put together. And everybody has their kind of, home recipe that is important to them um tell me more about that because um well i like pho but it's usually when i eat pho i'm gonna sit down someplace and be there for a while <laughs> technically we will have a hazard sticker on it and say please yes. do not eat this in your we car were- <laughs> yeah that could be like another mcdonald's lawsuit yeah yeah we're gonna <laughs> but but tell me more about it because if pho is a popular dish and Fought to go. I mean, I don't. I've never seen that anywhere. To be honest with you, um, they have these amazing to go containers that we've looked into, and basically, it's the broth at the bottom, and mm-hmm. then and kind of think about like a parfait when you get at like McDonald's or something. The parfait is sits at the at the bottom, and then there's a little cup for granola at the top. Right. So just imagine a, a way larger container. So you'll hold your noodles and your your meat and your vegetables at the top. And then you have the broth sit at the bottom. So it's uh-huh. a pour over um, type of situation. And when you're talking pho, I mean, the broth takes a long time, um, which we we can do on the prep side on the back end. But when it comes to assembling the bowl, it is faster than making a bun me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so if that makes any uh, operational value to like understanding it, it is faster than making a bun me once you have all the ingredients prepped and ready to go mm-hmm. takes you a third of the time. So we're, we're really excited about that. Mm-hmm. We just have space right now in 850 square feet. We just literally cannot find even a, another spot for a stock pot to get that going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, it is part of the new prototype for location two. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know this is going to be kind of a an answer that'll say it'll change as you continue to develop, but you've already had some very big, um, you know, hurdles from the concept development, the moving into the first one, the development of the second one. As you're developing, how have you seen your roles change, uh, and how do you see your roles becoming as you add more units? And um, uh, and then you know, what are those? How that how is that going to create more needs? And have you already started maybe building up a little bench strength with some support people uh, in key areas? Um, our roles change from being day one startup operators, <laughs> uh, navigating through all the ups and downs, and um, and staffing and everything. Um, we do have to value our family life too. And so we have built our infrastructure from the beginning. Um, and I think we have our solid core of an infrastructure that we want to take with us to the end, you know, with Savory that will gain sweat equity value with us, you know, sweat, sweat equity interests um, along Good. the way. They stay with us till the end, you know. Um, but we we do know that we cannot do it alone, not even, you know, with Savory's partnership. We our boots on the ground um, infrastructure, we do need the help. And so we've already built it in. And I think that is where our roles change is when we brought them in. Um, a director of ops, um, a director of kitchen, you know, that, you know, I got the recipe together, but, you know, this, our director of kitchen is 
making it every day consistently. I'm not having to worry about that like I was in the first six months of things, you know? They're consistently making everything the same way every day, which was very huge for me because I, you know, when I go and do quality control, I'm like, I can't stand it when it looks like this or the the carrots and daikon are too sweet, you know? And so the fact that I found a lot of consistency within the menu and the recipes has been game changer for my role. And now I can move into expansion. Um, so that's been a, a good change. I think the best way to kind of put it is like, instead of working in your business, we're working on the business. And, um, that's, you know, a dream that we can, we're able to do that already at, you know, store one. And for us, it's, it's about com- connecting to the community. So being able to actually do a lot of events, focus on catering and really um, just connecting with people. And that's what we love to do. And that's kind of why we did this in the first place. So our roles are definitely changing in that sense because we now can concentrate on the outreach of our expansion. Is the Southwest really where you want to focus on all your efforts or do you have visions of taking it to other um, regions in the United States? Um, With this partnership with Sabry, we've already kind of earmarked and mapped out um, the path that we're going to. And so I think our goal is to expand to about 40 units um, or 10 million EBITDA over the next um, six years, six to seven. I would say that any brand that Sabre normally picks up is already at a 10 unit. So it will take them a little bit less of time to get there. But our our game plan is getting there within six or seven years, hopefully um, opening 40 stores, starting in Houston, um, then moving into all over Texas, then heading up to probably the Midwest. Um, And that's really just because that's where economics work for us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not paying high dollar um, rents in West and East Coast. And so, um, and the goal is, you know, someone will pick it up after that. Savory, you know, that's a good thing with this whole thing with Savory is, man, when Sandy and I, we did this single-handedly, okay, we want to sell it. Well, okay, who are we going to sell it to? What is that vision? I think Savory has their name in the game that people are just waiting to pick up the concept from them, you know, and buy it out at a multiple, it's already there, you know, and that's, that's a hard part in exiting too, you know? And so um, we're, we're excited for that day. I mean, in six mm-hmm. to seven years, I think, you know, our, our dreams would have been made. Um, we built a legacy, we built a brand nationally and how we partake in that after that, we'll see, but you know, it's good enough for us to get this far. Well, uh, I mean, that's that is a very well laid out plan. And I and I think we would hear from other companies just beginning their growth, the same thing, that it's really time to take a look at the newer developing markets going Midwest. All the attention isn't always the coasts, especially since that's where all the expenses are. That makes great uh, sense for all the listeners that are out there. You know, when you are beginning an expansion plan to know that you've got specific goals and to have an exit, you know, plan painted is what's important. And sometimes those are the missing pieces. Everyone wants to run, 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 and they're running and they're spending, but without a really good goal as to what am I really supposed to uh, accomplish here in terms of wealth, timeline, and exit. So that was good. So my next question now gets us a little way from here, because during this period of time, you also have another concept or two. 
They're not part of this expansion program. I love to hang out in one of them. Can we talk a little bit about Sunday Press? How was that developed? Um, and um, what kind of role do you still play with that? Um, and where might it go, if anywhere? Yeah, so we, um, I know it's it crazy when we got together that we ended up doing both concepts pretty much simultaneously. Um, but Sunday Press really was for the love of coffee and pastries and for the, the love of being a part of a community. Um, obviously, when you think about a cafe or a coffee shop, you think about gatherings and coming together to meet people. And so we loved, we fell in love with Garden Oaks. I think it's it's a, a terrific neighborhood. And um, we thought that, you know, it was really missing a, a centered coffee shop. And so we bu built this beautiful space with a conference room that people can run out and also have a drive-through. So all these families that come through the drive-through with their little kids in the back sleeping, Every time I like, service the drive-thru, I'm like, I did this for you. We did this <laughs> for you. And so it makes us like super, super happy because we always had kids sleeping in the car and we're just like, oh, I'm tired of Chick-fil-A. I'm tired of Starbucks. Where can I get like an acai bowl or avocado toast or a really good salad through the drive-thru? And so we came up with Sunday Press and that's kind of how it came about. We had to also cater to a more... Um, prepped menu as well to service the drive-thru here. Um, I used to call ourselves like a Starbucks on steroids, but really we evolved out of that as well um, because we do have our Turbo Chef um, that, you know, fast rapid cook oven that, you know, Starbucks uses, but our menu's probably like three times as big, you know? Um, but we also, we built this beautifully aesthetically pleasing cafe. And when we opened, it was like, but all your stuff is so to go, you know, and we're sitting here and reading to go. And so um, I think about a, a year in, we are like, we got we to gotta change something. So we're like, let's add more to the menu. So we evolved into an all day cafe with like hamburgers and pastas and more salads and plated food, plated food, um, charcuterie boards and different things. And so a year into this, we just added that with more with plates, you know, sustainable wear, different things. And we had to evolve to the thing. It didn't quite match all the way, you know, this beautiful place, but then it's all like Starbucks style food, you know, pre-packaged and all this. And so we evolved that. We're evolving again. We're building a cocktail bar in here. Um, so we're kind of, it's kind of like a, it's a moving target. <laughs> it's a one-stop shop here now for us. Well, that's a big deal in itself. And you've got, um, you know, Saigon Hustle. Um, how do you balance all that? It, it, you know, I mean, um, Saigon Hustle seems like a, enough of an enterprise where you could spend all your waking hours working on that. How, are there, is there anything about having these two that complement each other or you know, if, you, if I'm if I'm clear in my question, you know, how do you manage it all? Well, I can tell you that Cassie has a lot of experience operating and that I think her, her main focus before was always to build in this executive layer. And so we have an executive team that helps us navigate these locations. We actually have a third location during this time as well. It's called Ginger Kale, which is pretty much the same as Sunday Press, but located at the park, Herman Park here in Houston, Texas. And um, so between the three locations, um, we had to we had to add an executive layer. And so they really are 
kind of like the ride or die. They they pretty much help us handle operations between three stores. So we've got mm-hmm. support. With okay. That- and I think, don't you get a little connection just because you can run next door to the other? Um, and I even saw, you know, sometimes I see customers do that. I mean, they're at Saigon Hustle Eating. Then they just walk right next door to Sunday Press for coffee and dessert. Oh, okay. I understand. Yeah, this was the beginning thought process when Sandy said, hey, let's do something together. We said, okay. And we came up with two different concept, we, concepts. We signed the lease at the same time, right before COVID. It, same board, mm-hmm. side by side drive-through capable on both. And um, and so we navigated through that um, with kind of like the idea of what's going to hit the jackpot, really. One of these has got to stick, you know? And um, Saigon did first, right? And actually Saigon would have been the only one because of the fact that it is a, a beautiful labor model. Um, you know, Sunday price is huge. Our, our labor model is a little bit high, a lot of bit higher here, which is why we're having to continue to evolve. Right. Um, but I think we, with this expansion of the bar, it will be at the numbers it needs to be at. However, mm-hmm. this bandwidth and this expansion that you're talking about, we, you know, Sunday press will happen as organically, if at all. Um, Saigon is the intentional growth of what we're doing. Um, but like, for instance, Sunday Press, um, we want an RFP with a park development here in Houston where they're developing it for us. They're building out the restaurant for us. So Sunday Press 2 is coming, but it's not like we sought out to do something great, you know, where we had to inject more capital to grow it while we were doing Saigon. It's right. a more effort thing. And, you know, that keeps us in the community, um, well embedded in the community. And so we did it. Obviously, we didn't have to put capital injection in we get to expand this concept um at a brand new park development and so we're excited about that um but it's definitely not the intentional intention to grow this like saigon you've got some good um help with your you know your operations executive team um and you mentioned a very important thing working on the business for our listeners who might want to go down your path when you say working on the business what what is that in terms of the time you spent what does that mean in terms of marketing finance planning um could you educate our listeners in terms of you know when working, what does working on the business mean to you in terms of, you know, your, your day-to-day management? I, uh, you know, this goes back to a lot of people look at this as very old school mentality. I got to be there. I got to work it. I got to be a cash register person, you know, person. Um, mm-hmm. I got to put a headset on and be a drive through you know, like I have to be there. Um Part of working on the business is realizing you can hire and find and groom the right people to do the things that you don't need to be doing, right? You should be out there networking. You should be out there um, marketing. Um, uh, You should be expanding your menu or, you know, taking all the criticism and making changes on those things, you know, Mm -hmm. versus being behind the counter, um, and so a lot of old school operators, you know, much like my dad, who I grew up in a restaurant, thought I was an idiot to go into a restaurant again, you know? And I was like, but dad, we operate differently. You open yeah. seven days a week, open and close. You're tired like a dog. And, um, but we don't operate like that. And, and when he saw these concepts open, he's like, all right, you're onto something now, you know? And, but that comes with our, I think 
our experience in management. I come from wealth management. I come from a, a company like Savory, you know, where you do have to have the right people and systems and realize you're you're actually not the best cash you know, register front of house person. The way I always have to look at it is your billable hours, right? So yeah. is your is your time worth being at a cashier position or is your time worth, you know, handling the marketing and, and handling the growth of, of your business? And so really try to make decisions based on that. And I think the most important thing, what I learned throughout my career is we're not the best at what we do. And so being able to realize that and ask for help, I think that's probably what, has set us apart is always asking for help, always seeking knowledge on on things we're not knowledgeable about. And um, I think the biggest component of what I do every day is really um, on the computer. Um, it's the, learning the back end of Toast. It's learning, um, you know, Facebook, Meta, and and social media yeah. on ads and coming up with new content to um, do a reel um, so that you're able to trend higher. Um, We recently launched like croissant swirls at Sunday Press uh, at the very beginning of January, and it has done so amazing. I mean, it it definitely had a huge jump in revenue um, from the time that we started it to now and and really kind of sustained our business in a way. And so coming up with those ideas and things, it's it's so important to drive the business. I always tell the staff, like, wow. it's your job to keep the customers. It's my job to keep more customers coming through the door. And so that's kind of how we always look at it. Do you lean on the staff in terms any of- better. You know, Barry, I don't think I don't think it could be explained any better. No, that, that was on the business versus the in the business than that. Um, and so I hope everyone really took note of that, that that you just mentioned the entire principle of the business while you were talking. And I really like the way you positioned it first by starting with people because it starts with people. You're right. You don't have to be everywhere and do everything. You can develop people that starts with people. And then this way you can spend your time on product. And as you mentioned, process systems that help you get more customers and develop more profit. So I hope everyone took note of that because that it that is that's textbook for working your way out of the in the business constantly and putting your mind and your time on it was the- a wonder it was a wonderful uh, response to my question thank you for that one as a follow-up question on that um you know given the time you're spending on the business um in terms of uh your staff who are on the front line with your customers and and working with the food um do they inform you quite a bit in terms of things that you might do differently and things that you might tweak in the business do you do you spend a lot of time talking to your frontline workers to kind of get a sense of what's working and what isn't yeah um we have weekly meetings sandy and i personally with our frontline workers um, you're talking our our managers of every store. We have weekly meetings, and then that is us personally. And then you don't forget we have the layers in between who work with them every day and report back to us anything that anything we need to know. And it's not like you know the idea of having the layers is they're not bogging you down with like things that they can fix. They're bog you know they're alerting you of things they don't know how to fix, and we're mm-hmm. here to. Right. And so very high level is where we're getting the staff to get to when it becomes to um, utilizing us. Um, and so it, it's it's been good. And that, 
you have to stay consistent in that as well, you know, and um, they like to sit at the table with us and they like to tell us what's happening and how we can help them. Um, but there's a fine line of cutting an umbilical cord and, and <laughs> staying close to, you know, and um, we're navigating through that every day, you know, and, but we do know those are the things that have to be done now, how to do it. Is it easy to do? Not always, you know, you always find um, a tie or a, a, you feel obligated, but there is a fine line of letting the people do what they need to do, letting them make mistakes, learning from mistakes. It does, it happens. You can't control it all. Mm-hmm. I know we speak a lot about high level as well, but Cassie and I, we both equally are on the floor at least once or twice a week, um, working at least a half a shift just to see processes and how things are moving. And and so we do, we're able to catch a lot of mistakes in that sense. We're like, why are you doing it this way? Or what's happening here? Um, so that we can fix things, right? We're always, we always tell them like, we're here to help make work less stressful. Like I always tell the staff, especially at Sunday Press, like, this is supposed to be fun. Like people come in here for pastry and, and coffee. Like this should be the highlight of your day. So and in no capacity should this work be stressful at at any point. And if it is, there's something wrong with our processes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the more they see too that it's coming from the top. You've said this a couple of times that you may not be the best at everything. I mean, you're you're the owners, so you may have to have final say so on things, but that doesn't mean that you're the best at everything. And so that you like to have engagement because you ask questions and you're constantly learning. You've said that a couple of times, and I think that the more the staff see that, the more it makes them a little bit easier to say it's okay for me to say, I don't know everything about what I'm doing here. I no need to get stressed about it. Just ask. Uh, and my owners ask, so maybe I should. It's and funny because sometimes when we get on the floor, sometimes I don't know, you know, how to do some things just because we're not on the floor every day, all day. And so then I'll have to ask a question. I'm like, I'm so sorry. It's my first day. <laughs> <laughs> I say, okay. Yeah. You have to go through training again. <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's, It's super humbling and I I love it. I mean, I I really, really, truly love it. And so um, I think that resonates. I I feel like when you come into a business, you can feel the pulse of a a restaurant or a cafe. And so I really hope that when people come into our establishment that they, they feel that. I like that, you know, and, and you know, you you really just answered a question about what's the culture of your business, um, mm-hmm. but more than that, which I don't think people would say much, that that culture, you know, that kind of permeates the entire guest experience. Um, so I I just enjoyed what you were saying about that. I ha- I have to mention that. This has been incredibly enjoyable. Barry and I wish we had another hour just to continue talking. And unfortunately, we're going to have to kind of wrap up for now. But if it's okay with you, we're going to want to stay close and check back. I think there might be an episode in the future that uh, can maybe revisit some of these principles as Saigon Hustle 2, 3, 4 open. And we get to revisit some of the things that we've just been laying out today as your short-term strategy. Love to have you back if you would. And there's some things I'm writing about. If 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 I might uh, contact you ladies uh, to interview you uh, for some some more advice for our readers, um, if I may do that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, we would love to. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, everyone, you've been listening to some great pearls of wisdom. You've been listening to a lot about how to do things right from Sandy and Cassie. Unfortunately, Saigon Hustle isn't everywhere yet, but stay tuned. One's probably coming to a uh, neighborhood close by you uh, one day soon. So. Thank you so much, ladies, for being a part of today. We look forward to talking to you in the future. Continued success. 
Thank you. Thank you. Everybody else, hope we can see you another time really soon on another Corner Booth. Have a great one. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.